episode seven. We have an interview with Congresswoman Liz Cheney from the great state of Wyoming. What I believe is that uh, the tax system right now is far too complicated and that when you cut people's taxes, and history has shown this, that when you cut people's taxes, when you let people keep more of their own money, um, then that generates economic growth. In my view, the way to deal with the deficit and the way to deal with the fiscal problems we have is not through raising taxes and having more revenue come into the treasury through raising taxes it's by cutting spending what's on the table right now as far as you you can tell or what's being discussed that we can reduce spending we've got to repeal something called the budget control act we've got a lot of folks on the other side of the aisle who are saying well if you're going to spend that on defense you have to spend this on domestic and that doesn't make any sense one of the major controversies of this bill seems to be the salt deductions you can't eliminate your state and local tax payments, then that's going to put pressure on those high tax states like California, New Jersey, and New York to lower their state taxes. We will also have a professor from the Fuqua School of Business, Scott Dyering. How much will the economy grow over and above what it would have grown had no action been taken. Do we all agree as millennials that we're not going to be facing a $1.5 trillion burden on our deficit after this bill is, is passed? When the federal government allows you know individuals or corporations to deduct state and local taxes, that is effectively the federal government subsidizing those states very important to the Republican Party to get this bill passed now to continue to have funding going into the midterm. The idea that you could have slow, meticulous, deliberate debate and and, and, and develop a kind of cross-party consensus on anything now, I, I think is rather fanciful. Episode 7. And we have several people in the room. You've heard from most of us before, or all of us before now at this point, Kyle Muma, Alex Kovacevic, Kov, and Harold. Uh, I'm your host again. We've had quite a season so far of very cool speakers. We had Doug Robinson come on episode five. We had Jared Lindzen last week talk about the future of work on episode six. Highly encourage you to go check those out. I think they've all been very fruitful conversations. Tonight, we have a, it's pretty jam-packed, actually. We have an interview with Congresswoman Liz Cheney from the great state of Wyoming, and we're going to talk about tax reform as the House and Senate bills enter conference and, and go through this reconciliation period of negotiating terms of the future tax reform bill. So following that, we will also have a professor from the Fuqua School of Business, Scott Dyering, who is an associate professor of accounting at Duke. Interests are corporate tax avoidance, international taxation, and accounting for income taxes. Those are his areas of research. So it's a, it's a pretty packed episode, and I think will be pretty fruitful, huh? Yeah, this, this, this is a, a great episode. I mean, the, the interview with, with Liz Cheney is a phenomenal speaker to get on, and... and um, and Scott really knows his stuff about tax. I took his class last year, and it's one of the best classes I took at Fuqua. It's, uh, he's, he's a great guy. Excellent. So without further ado, I had the honor of interviewing Liz Cheney, congresswoman from Wyoming, on Monday, December 11th, and we'll play that interview, and then a few of us are going to chat about tax reform and implications on us millennials moving forward. So here we go. Hi, Ms. Cheney. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Jake? Doing well, thank you. Good. Um, Thanks for taking the time this afternoon here. Sure. Um, so let's, uh, I know that we're crunched for time, so let's dive right into it if that works for you. Sure. Okay. So this podcast is meant to be a medium that connects the millennial generation with policy and decision makers, broadly speaking. So therefore, when you and I talk about tax reform now, and that was going to be the focus of this conversation, I'd like to focus on future implications of its passing. Sure. And so approaching the conversation from the perspective that I, you know, being a representative of the millennial electorate could be swayed 
one way or the other as to my agreement with the proposed reform. So we can, we can kind of take that perspective and talk about the different nuances of the, of the bill, namely around the corporate tax rate dropping to 20-ish percent, depending on how the reconciliation goes between the House and Senate bills. And then I'd really like to look at revenue neutrality because there, there are definitely some studies out there that say the bill is not, in fact, revenue neutral, and which has huge implications for my generation as we take on more burden with the, with the rising deficit. So if we start there and then kind of see where the conversation goes, does that sound like a good sure. plan? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, okay. So, you know, um, I think it's important to, when you're talking about this bill and talking about tax cuts and tax reform in general, um, you know, to start from the, the perspective of what I believe as a conservative, what I believe as a Republican about taxes. And um, what I believe is that uh, the tax system right now is far too complicated and that when you cut people's taxes, and history has shown this, that when you cut people's taxes, when you let people keep more of their own money, um, then that generates economic growth. And there are even studies that show, for example, uh, a 1% increase in GDP growth annually translates into about a trillion dollars additional revenue into the Treasury. So the, the economic growth that comes from tax cuts uh, generates revenue. And a lot of the estimates that you've seen out there ignore that economic growth piece of this whole thing. So you can't, you know, if you're, if you're sitting back saying, look, how do we deal with the deficit, which I agree is a huge issue we've got we've to deal with, and we have to deal with government spending. Um, the way to deal with the deficit, the number one most important thing we've got to do is grow our economy and get the economy growing at a pace that we do have additional revenue coming in. And a big way to do that is you let people keep more of their own money. People, you know, small business owners, for example, um, use that money to invest, to grow their businesses. They create jobs. So you end up in a situation where um, a growing economy, number one, it provides more job opportunities for people that are just coming out of school looking for jobs. Yeah. Number two, it helps address the deficit situation. And number three, in my view, the way to deal with the deficit and the way to deal with the fiscal problems we have is not through raising taxes and having more revenue come into the Treasury through raising taxes. It's by cutting spending. And looking at what we're doing across the board from a spending perspective and making decisions about what the government ought to be spending money on and what it shouldn't be spending money on. Right. But I think for a young person today, for example, somebody who's getting ready to graduate from high school or college thinking about a job, um, I think that you know, you're going to be much better off graduating into an economy that has been spurred by the kind of um, tax cuts and economic policy that we've seen since January, and I include deregulation in that too, because that's another big driver of economic growth. Right. Um, but when you get those burdens off of business, then you get the kind of growth that creates jobs that people need and helps us begin to deal with the, the deficit challenges we face. Sure, and and I, I agree with the basic conservative principles: lower taxes, reduce government spending. I believe those are all good things, and. Others may argue differently, and that's fine. Um, for this bill, if you look at revenue plus cost, it has to equal zero to be you know, revenue neutral, but, and then you take into account some of the, the other economic growth and so forth. But if we, if we dive into the spending piece of it, what's on the table right now as far as you, you can tell or what's being discussed that we can reduce spending? Because it seems to be that it's revenue neutral with an asterisk future bills to come that will reduce spending to offset the tax revenue loss. And I, and I do appreciate the, the increase in, in economic growth as well. But See, that's where I, you know, I think we need to cut spending, but I don't think that we should be in a situation where we're saying, you know, wait a minute, if this has got to be tied directly to a loss of revenue that comes out of this tax bill in part because I think that's, you know, what that does is, is it says you're not going to take into account what we've just been talking about. We're not going to take into account economic growth. 
which is, I would say, one of the main reasons, in addition to the fact that people deserve to keep more of what they make, that, that this bill and that this kind of tax policy makes sense. So I think what you'll see going forward, and, you know, my view is we've got to repeal something called the Budget Control Act. And the Budget Control Act was put in place back in 2011, um, and those Republicans and Democrats are to blame for it. You know, President Obama supported it. You had Republican leadership in the House at the time that supported it. But what the Budget Control Act does is it basically it sets caps on domestic discretionary spending and on defense spending. And it, it, it suggests that, you know, if you're going to raise a dollar for defense spending, then you should raise a dollar for domestic discretionary spending. Sure, I remember um, that one. And, and the first thing I would say is that, um, you know, Congress's job is to decide what the priorities for spending are and to appropriate money against those priorities. What the Budget Control Act does is it sort of puts the whole thing on autopilot. So we end up in a situation where, you know, right now the Republicans are in charge and um, we're facing a huge challenge from a defense perspective, grave threats all around the world, and instead of being able to appropriate the money we know we need for defense, um, you know, we've got a lot of folks on the other side of the aisle who are saying, well, if you're going to spend that on defense, you have to spend this on domestic, and that doesn't make any sense. Right. We've got to spend what we think is necessary and evaluate individual programs, not be handcuffed by some kind of a formula. Sure. And the other thing that the Budget Control Act fails to do is that it fails to address the huge part of the budget it's mandatory spending, and I'm not talking about Social Security or Medicare, so set those totally aside. But even when you set those aside, there's a huge number of programs that have been in the budget forever that are mandatory. So they basically get funded every year, no matter what Congress does. And I also think that's wrong. I think that we have to make sure that we're protecting programs like Social Security and Medicare so they are there for the people that need them. Um, we've got to make, we've got to be clear about the fact that they are not going to be there for people who are millennials unless we fix them, um, because they, you know, they'll fail before then, long before then. Um, but then we also should say, wait a minute, what's, what's all the other, what are all these other programs that we're spending mandatory money on every year? Um, and that's where we need to really be honest and look at, wait a minute, if we want to cut spending, you can't just do it on the discretionary side of the budget. You've got to look at the mandatory the side. Yeah. Yeah. It makes total sense. Um, and if I, if I get back to, you know, keeping more money in, in taxpayers pockets, uh, particularly, you know, looking again from a millennial perspective, um, one of the major controversies of this bill seems to be the salt deductions that could hurt primarily blue states like California, New Jersey, New York, but therefore also hurting blue state Republicans. And we've explored a lot on this podcast, the future of the two-party system, and uh, and we've taken positions that it's probably a necessary evil, if you will. But the millennial electorate, if you look at them broadly, have really said, you know, I'm fiscally conservative, but socially liberal. They've, they find themselves in this uh, quagmire of, you know, maybe being urban dwellers that could end up paying higher taxes uh, if the SALT deductions go through. Is yeah, and, and the SALT, I mean, I can tell you the um, philosophical view is, look, you know, if, if you can't eliminate your state and local tax payments, then that's going to put pressure on those high-tax states like California, New Jersey, and New York to lower their state taxes that, you know, taxes across the board ought to be lower. And those, those states are imposing a huge burden on their citizens by having such high tax rates, and they ought to be lowered. So I understand, you know, the notion behind um, if people feel like they're paying, their taxes are too high, then they, they ought to pressure their state governments as well. And there is a sense of, like, you know, should the federal government be in a position where it's making it easier for state governments to impose really high taxes by guaranteeing um, a deduction. Now, I think that what you've seen is, as with a lot of things in the tax code, you know, people have made that they've done financial planning based on the way the tax code currently is. And so, um, you know, you've seen across the board 
people in states like New York and New Jersey and California, I think they have a legitimate point when they say, well, wait a minute, but you know, we built these businesses, some of which operate globally, with the understanding that people would be able to deduct their state and local taxes. And you can't just all of a sudden say, oh, wait, we're changing all the rules, because that could potentially put businesses at risk, as well as, you know, people's fundamental financial planning they may have made. So I think that one of the things you're seeing is um, some, some compromise, looking at ways to put back in some of the property tax um, deductions. And I think also with respect to California, um, before our bill passed out of the House, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee gave his commitment um, that he would look for ways that we could help alleviate some of the pain that folks in California would be feeling um, because of if we, the elimination of, of the salt, the state and local tax issues. So I think that we'll, we'll you know, hopefully um, we'll see what comes out of conference, but, but that's an issue that I think people on both sides of it have been taking a look at making sure we do the right thing and yeah. you know don't hurt people un- unintentionally. You just call vote. Yeah. Um, but I'm uh, I'm happy to do this again, Jake. If you'd like another time. Or- oh, that'd be great. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Have a good day. All right. Thanks. thanks you too. Bye. So there you have it. That was Liz Cheney, representative from the great state of Wyoming, and back around the circle to debrief our Cove Harold Muma as well as Scott Dyring, Associate Professor of Accounting at Duke University. He's dialing in by phone from Oxford. He also teaches our global tax class, so obviously an expert in the area and can help us uh, kind of break this bill apart. So, Scott, thanks for joining us from afar, and I'll throw it around the table for any reaction or first thoughts about what Representative Cheney had to say. Yeah, so I think, fuzzy, great interview, Jake. Um, I think it went really well. I think you, you pushed on some good things. I think the thing that kind of stood out to me was how how interesting it was that she approached this from a let's kind of philosophically as conservatives we believe that people should be able to keep more of their money in their pockets businesses should be able to keep more of the money they make to invest spend return to investors who are then gonna we just do that through consumption through investing in in other businesses um, and that philosophically that has to hold and that's where everything stems from people you know government should really tax as little as they can get away with taxing to pay for important things um and 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 that kind of is 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 the the platform of of a, of a bill that then tries to to kind of enact that through the complexities of the american tax code um so i thought it was really interesting just to, to you know that was my key takeaway that she had this kind of philosophically ideologically this is where we're coming from and that needs to be stated first before um really talking about any detail or any nuance and, and one of the main topics that I tried to really stress was the revenue neutrality of this of this reform. And Scott, I'd love to get your opinion on this as well, because I posed the simple equation that revenue plus cost has to equal zero. And of course, she came back with, well, we have to factor in the economic growth that will stem from reinvestment of companies having more money to put into their businesses and more money in shareholders' pockets. But do we all agree as millennials that we're not going to be facing a $1.5 trillion burden on our deficit after this bill is, is passed? Well, I mean, that's the magic question, of course, in any uh, analysis of revenue neutrality is uh, how much will the economy grow over and above what it would have grown had no action been taken? And you know, unfortunately, the counterfactual is extremely difficult to observe. So, um, you know, Ms. Cheney essentially argued that um, the tax cut would result in, you know, substantial economic growth and that the growth would be sufficient to overcome, uh, you know, sort of the revenue uh or that would would be sufficient to overcome the tax cuts and the and the kind of reduce you know revenue if you were thinking of it from a static point of view. Nobody knows if that's going to happen, and there's you know we don't know. So is it revenue neutral? I mean, I think that depends on exactly you know what you believe about economic growth. Well, one of the other things that that kind of came up towards the end was this. Um the state and local tax deductions. 
which which um and I wasn't sure if I completely kind of uh, bought into to, to her theory that if you get rid of this deduction, then suddenly the population of New York or California or New Jersey is suddenly going to rise up and and demand huge tax cuts in in, in their respective states. And uh, Scott, do, do you have a view on kind of how you see that playing out and whether you see um, that type of, of of action now potentially making a kind of uh, state and local taxes much more flat across the US? Well, I think, yeah, I think her argument with regard to state and local taxes uh, was that if, say, California wants to have a 9% state tax, it's really only a 6% state tax because the federal government is paying for the other 3%. And her argument was that if you force uh, the states to sort of bear the economic consequences of their tax rates, that their citizens will cry more loudly at a 9% tax that's not subsidized than a 9% tax that is subsidized, which in her view would ultimately lead to pressure from the public to reduce state taxes. Uh, would that happen? Um, maybe, but it's again one of those things that's really hard to know. What we do know is that um, when the federal government uh, allows you know individuals or corporations to deduct state and local taxes, that is effectively um, the federal government subsidizing those states. So if you compare a high you know, tax state like California with a low tax state, uh, say Florida, um, the federal government is at some level subsidizing the uh, state tax collections in those high tax states relative to low tax states. So would her argument play out in reality? I I don't know that anybody knows, but um, there is at least some economic sense to what she's arguing which is that the federal government is making it easier for states to have high taxes because the federal government is paying for a third of them. And that, that makes sense. And uh, I, know, I know we opened up your class last year with uh, why the Utah Jazz is uh, struggling in the NBA because of uh, state tax rates. So maybe this might, uh, might, help to, uh, <laughs> might help to get some good free agent players out, out to your boys over there. That's maybe. I mean, the problem is Utah's a high high tax state, so we need that federal deduction. <laughs> so, so let's break down the three components of the corporate tax rate, namely lowering the corporate tax rate from thirty five percent. It sounds like they might have met at the middle at twenty one percent. We can talk about what that means as far as reinvestment versus a new payout policy before the end of the year. Does that benefit shareholders? more quickly or is there going to be a flurry of M&A activity or what will they actually do with that money? And then we can talk about interest deductibility because that's going to crush highly levered businesses that can't, um, th- that might not have the cash on the balance sheet to pay off any interest or, or what have you. And the third is this transitional tax. So the transitional tax rate of 14% versus 7% of cash, non-cash, respectively. That was out of the House bill. We don't know what that's going to look like for uh, this bill coming out of conference. But if we take uh, take a look at those three buckets, what do you all believe are major implications of of those put together between the corporate tax rate, transitional tax, and uh, uh, interest deductibility? So let me just take, take them one at a time. So um, if you reduce the corporate tax from 35% to 21%, um, who benefits, I think, essentially is the question you're asking. Yep. And there's really kind of three possibilities. The shareholders benefit, the customers benefit, or the workers benefit. And that's sometimes known as tax incidents or who bears the burden of the corporate tax. So we know that the corporation pays the tax, but just because they pay the tax doesn't mean they actually bear the burden of the tax. It's possible that they pass the burden of the tax to their workers by paying them lower wages or to their customers by charging higher prices. 
And economists have been interested in this uh, phenomena of corporate tax incidents for a long time. And they've studied it kind of theoretically with mathematical models. And they've studied it empirically by looking at what happens when tax rates change and so forth. And the conclusion in that literature is that it's pretty clear that corporate that shareholders don't bear the entire burden, but that some of the burden is borne by uh, labor and some of the burden is borne by consumers. And what's disputed is how much is borne by parties other than shareholders. So when the share when the, when the rate drops, uh, the immediate reaction will be that share prices will increase because at least some of the burden is borne by uh, shareholders. And, and in fact, we're seeing, I believe, in the stock market, uh, which seems to go up a little bit more every day, my guess is that's impounding some of the expectation that the corporate tax will be lower, which will benefit shareholders. The argument that workers will benefit from this is something that would take a little more time to play out. But essentially what would happen is because now the cost of capital is lower um, and there's more uh, sort of, it's easier for companies to invest because less of their uh, income has been returned to the government. That will create economic growth, which will increase the demand for workers which will, um, when you have an increase in demand, you will probably see a rise in wages. Uh, how much that rise will be, you know, your guess is as good as mine. I know the administration tossed out $4,000 per family or something like that. But as far as I can tell, that's a number that's essentially generated by licking your finger and sticking it up in the air to see which way the wind is blowing, you know. There probably will be some benefit in the long run, but how much I think is extremely difficult to estimate. And, and that is really the, the crux of their argument is that we will see a spike in economic growth and we'll see that in the form of new jobs, new opportunities for workers to either move up in the company or new jobs just created due to reinvestment. And if you look at the first uh, that you mentioned shareholders receiving payouts that really only benefits the wealthy anyway, because it's typically true and you can correct me on the actual stats, but uh, that, you know, the, the wealthiest of Americans are the ones that own the most shares of each of these corporations that are benefiting. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely true that I think equity uh, is by and large, uh, it, well, a greater fraction of equity is held by, you know, people who have more wealth. But, you know, you and I uh, have already seen the benefit of this. I don't consider myself extraordinarily wealthy because my 401k is going up <laughs> yep. more than it probably otherwise would. So at some level, it, it benefits everybody. But, yeah, I mean, it, those who own more uh, benefit more. And but, so if I throw uh, that back at you, so do you... Th do do you think that prices? Yeah, go ahead. Do you think that prices in the market have already taken into consideration a future tax bill that would be passed this year? Is that one of the major uh, drivers? My guess is that you know they've they've certainly taken into account the probability that it will be enacted, and I think at this point the market has recognized that that probability is high. So, yeah, my guess is that the market has essentially impounded it, probably not 100%, but, you know, you and I can see that it's very likely this is going to pass, and so can the market. And so, you know, shareholders, will, traders will impound that benefit into prices right away. They're not going to wait, you know, and see what happens, so... Yeah, I just want to echo as well the whole kind of 401k piece. I mean, I don't consider myself by any means at least, you know, when I look at what I've done before business school, um, um, you know, what I've been able to save in my 401k. I mean, it's it's done incredibly well, like over the last like year, like no question. And that's something that I kind of watch uh, fairly, you know, frequently. I think the other thing that I would kind of like to explore is this whole element of like small business, right? And what kind of you know growth 
would be expected on a tax cut or a tax cut like this for for small business. My perception is, is as you look at the middle class or you would like a growing middle class, um, an environment that is advantageous to small business that's able to take those savings and reinvest it back in the comp in, in their company is is something that you know is probably difficult to, to to quantify as a lot of these are privately held companies. But I think. Um, is something that my, my, my projection is, is that you're going to see a lot of growth like there and it's going to be very good for the economy, but I would leave that for, for debate. And I think, I think we can probably incorporate that. Is there going to be small business growth or will this interest deductibility issue come into play and kind of, uh, hinder that growth? I think the key point that you need for that small business growth and Harold, you know this better than I do, but you need, some sort of increase in spending power and demand to have that type of small business growth because you're not, if you're a small business, just because the tax rate goes down, you're not going to suddenly start producing more and start adding jobs. If you're, if the demand from your consumers for whatever product or service you're offering is exactly the same. So ultimately in order for that type of growth to happen, the spending power of, the middle to lower class Americans is going to have to go up. It, it that's that's at least my view and my understanding. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't dispute you know what you're saying. I, here's the way to think about it: um, if uh, just think of uh, a return on a, an investment uh, as say 10% before tax, and if the tax rate is say 35%, then after tax your rate of return is you know, six and a half percent. Well, you know, in, in your finance classes, you know, you say you should invest up until a project is, you know, NPV, any NPV project you should invest in. And that, of course, depends crucially on what the rate of return is. So if the rate of return after tax is six and a half percent, and suddenly I drop the tax rate to 20 percent, now the rate of return is eight percent. And what that will do is make some investment opportunities that you had foregone because they didn't appear to be uh, NPV positive, it will make some of those that have been sitting on the table suddenly become NPV positive because the cost of capital has gone down. Now, how many that is, um, that's, you know, again, hard to tell. And we don't have very much research on private companies because there's not very much data available for private companies. Um, so, it's going to be a little tricky to see exactly what happens there. But, you know, my guess is there will be an increase in investment in small businesses, which will lead hopefully to job growth. And if there's job growth, there will probably increase demand from the consumer side and, and so forth. But um, it's, it's hard to know ex ante how much is how much of that growth will actually take place and how long it will take to play out in the market. And, and then one thing I would add to your point, <coughs> Kyle, is, if your business is, um, as like, like many, many small businesses are, um, if your customers are also businesses, they have more cash in you know, after tax in their pocket to, to spend on your product as well. So if your consumer happens to be other businesses, then that's definitely, um, there's more cash for them to, to, to go and, 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 and buy your goods or services from. One of the, one of the things that, kind of, to answer your question, Harold, and, and, and to put out there, and, and I'd love to get your thoughts, Scott, on this, is so much... So, so many kind of big multinational companies already have these kind of very aggressive, very creative tax planning policies that allows them to to, to get a, an effective tax rate at 21% or below already. So really it's the small businesses that, that are based in the US and, and don't have the luxury of that type of um, structure to be able to do that type of tax planning. Surely they're the companies that are gonna be kind of helped out the most by, by this type of tax cut as opposed to those multinationals that have already um, managed to get an effective tax rate that, that is much closer to, to, where, to where we're coming down to. Would you agree with that, Scott? Um, partially. Uh, so it's a, the, the rate that matters for the investments that you make is not actually your average effective tax rate. It's your marginal rate. And so if I'm a multinational that has, say, a 20% effective tax rate, it might be the case that the next dollar I earn will be taxed at 35%, even though my average dollar had been already taxed at 20%, because 
whatever you know tax avoidance scheme I might have in place may not be effective on the next dollar I earn. So for investment uh, purposes, you would think about the marginal tax rate, not the average you know effective tax rate. But it, it's not clear, right? I mean, it is possible that these firms that have, say, 20% effective tax rates also have marginal tax rates of 20%. And in that case, you're right. It's going to uh, be the small businesses that don't have the tax planning opportunities available to them, which will benefit the most. So if we move into the transitional tax, what are your thoughts on that as far as the rates go? Uh Transitional tax, as I understand it, is mandatory versus a repatriation tax is not. It's optional. And so they're proposing a transitional tax. The House bill was 14% versus 7% cash, non-cash, respectively. Uh, the Senate bill is 10-5, respectively. And what do you think happens with that one-time tax on money overseas? Does it go... Does it get calculated into the revenue neutrality of this bill, which wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to me, or is it just used as here's new revenue to the treasury and we're going to put it into infrastructure or other projects that are that are looming, or do we put it into programs and, and increase spending? Well, I don't know exactly how they, uh, you know, run the calculations in terms of determining the um, revenue neutrality of the proposals, but. What I do know is that this sort of transitional rate is exactly what the companies have been hoping for as they have kind of stashed, you know, trillions, I think, two trillion, I think, is overseas. Um, and they, the only reason that it made sense to leave those earnings abroad was the expectation that tax on those earnings in the future would be lower and they're going to be rewarded richly for their patience it appears by paying something like you know 10 or 15 percent instead of or even five percent five ten fifteen percent instead of 35 percent that they would have paid had the uh, rates remained what they were um, now, before we get too carried away um, thinking about that particular issue, I think it is worth noting that even though it's a huge sum that's overseas, it took you know a long time um, for, that, for those earnings to accumulate, maybe 15 years since um, 10 to 15 years since the last kind of major holiday when a lot of those earnings flowed back in. And so um, the, the annual amount that you would receive if you had a 10 or 15% tax on foreign earnings every year wouldn't really be like a huge number. It would be something. It's not nothing, but it, it, it's not a massive um, dollar figure. And then I also think it's sort of worth pointing out that exactly what happens with that cash is... You know, it's an interesting question. I mean, there will clearly be lots of um, cash that comes flowing back, and and there will be revenue raised uh, because of this. Um, what the government does with it, you know, I don't know, but it's not something that's going to be a perpetuity. It's going to be kind of a one-time uh, collection, and you know. Leave it to Uncle Sam to figure out the best use of that. I have have no idea. <laughs> and then, of course, what what businesses do with that cash they can bring back too is going to be crucial. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know. You know, the last time they had a holiday, uh, they sort of said you need to use this for you know building factories and paying down debt and a few other things. And so, of course, what companies did was they brought back their cash and they built a factory, but then they took the cash that they were going to use to build the factory and they paid it out to shareholders. So the net effect was big payouts to shareholders. Some people were bothered by that uh, because they felt like it was just a giant giveaway to the shareholders. But, you know, what's the shareholder going to do with it? They're going to reinvest in the most efficient, uh, you know, with the, in, the, in the place that's the most efficient use of their capital or they're going to spend it. 
the the wealth goes someplace, and as long as it's being redeployed into the economy in some way or another, it's probably going to be beneficial to the economy. So, um, you know, who knows what they'll require them to do with it? But cash, you know, money is fungible, so uh, it probably won't matter really what those restrictions require unless there's some form of tracing uh, attached to the provisions. So I want to venture into the realm of politics briefly because one bill, as I understand it, was effective for this quarter's tax, essentially. So all books have to get adjusted to the new corporate tax rate. The other was effective a year from now. So firms had more of an opportunity to adjust everything to the new corporate tax rate and and be prepared. Um, What are the implications on corporations for the timing of this bill going into effect? And also, because midterms are next year, I would imagine that the bill will be the more immediate adjustment to the corporate tax rate so that it's a lot harder to undo should Republicans lose control in Congress. So any any thoughts on that from the group? Yeah, certainly Republicans are going to want to make this as permanent and as effective as possible. I think also with, with midterms next year, if Republicans really do believe that this is going to be a huge stimulus and generate more jobs and put more cash in people's pockets, they want people to be feeling the effects of that and having that kind of that 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 happiness and positive feeling going into midterms where they you know then hopefully reelect the the party that's in power. So no doubt, I think uh, the the the, um, the Congress and, and the Republicans generally are going to want this pushed through sooner rather than later. I, I would agree. I think. I think kind of oh, go ahead, Scott. Um, aspect of this is that uh, companies that have uh, big deferred tax assets like net operating loss carry forwards will have to take very large financial accounting uh, write-offs to to reduce the value of those carry forwards. And in fact, I think City just announced uh, this week that they were going to have to take like a, I don't know, $15 billion write-down or something. <laughs> and, um, and the reason is they're, you know, <laughs> Those, those net operating loss carry forwards, instead of being worth 35 cents on the dollar, are now worth 21 cents on the dollar, which makes those assets less valuable. Uh, what the market will do in response to that, uh, I don't think it will be big negative reactions, but um, it could reduce the earnings of a few, a few companies, companies that have had sort of poor years in the past. Uh, financial institutions that you know had a rough time during the crisis and so forth. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But in terms of whether it you know happens now versus a year from now, uh, I don't know that it's a huge deal. But I think the Republicans are saying, "Hey, man, let's let's make this happen as soon as possible, so that we can get the cash flowing, get the economy rolling," and they're betting that everybody will be in a happy mood come midterm elections because the you know economy will be booming. That's their hope. And if that happens, we know sort of historically that the economy um, is one of the major drivers of uh, political fates. And, and of course, I, so I, I agree with that. From a more controversial political perspective, I think that the fear could be that if this is delayed a year and Republicans lose control of Congress, that reforms could happen. And then tax reform, as we thought it was going to play out, is totally flipped on its head for, you know, for, for better or worse. So the well, I, I think the other implication that Lindsey Graham made pretty clear is that passing this bill was pretty much a contingency for them to continue receiving donations from some of their biggest donors. So I think it is very important to the Republican Party to get this bill passed now to continue to have funding going into the midterms. Uh, I think my my opinion on this bill is probably not popular in the room, but I think you know it to me it is it is mostly about that funding. Uh, this is. By all by all polls, a historically unpopular tax bill. It is, you know, Reagan t- 
tax bill, first first tax bill approval rate was 51%. Approval rate for this bill is somewhere around 30%. It's it's less less has a lower approval rate than some of the Clinton tax hikes had, uh, which to me I think is somewhat telling of the opinion of the American people about the bill. And so to me, it's it's being passed for funding purposes for the Republican Party. And and it's looked at fairly hypocritically, in my opinion, from how healthcare was slammed through at the end of it must have been two thousand and ten, I believe it was two thousand nine two thousand ten. Um, so I I understand. I mean, it, it's the same rhetoric that's coming out of uh, all media channels that we have no idea what's in this bill, and we're going to pass it anyway. And Nancy Pelosi famously said, "For the healthcare bill, we got to pass it to find out what's in it," and that's disturbing to both sides. I think. And, and this is just the reality of American politics now, with the kind of the, the level of polarization there is. Um, that these bills have to be passed in this way now, otherwise they never get passed and. And, and, and nothing gets done. That the idea that you could have slow, meticulous, deliberate debate and and and, and develop a kind of cross-party consensus on anything now, I, I think is rather fanciful. So this is this is this is the reality we live in, and this is what we get. And and yeah, ho- yeah hopefully we get we get hopefully kind of the 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 sense and the wisdom of lawmakers, what little of it there is prevails, and um, and we get something that is that is genuinely good for the country. But um, there's certainly no guarantee of that. Yeah, I, I I know I talk about it every episode, but the the fact that uh, bipartisan legislation is, in your words, cove fanciful, I think is kind of the shame of American politics. I mean, I I agree with you. That's that's the reality, and I think it's a a pretty unfortunate reality. I you know there are there are some things in this bill that I would be in favor of. Unfortunately, the only way to get it passed is to pile all sorts of other stuff in it that. I make it less appealing to someone like me and I think make it less appealing in general. Uh, and so that's, you know, the un- unfortunate reality of American politics is you can't pass a simple tax bill that says, let's lower the corporate tax rate a little bit and see what happens. You have to pass it with all these other sweeping changes. So we've, we've talked about corporate tax rate changes. Scott, what we try to do on this podcast is explore implications of the millennial generation and what this means to us as we venture into the workforce again after second year. And of course, as part of this bill, it looks like uh, interest deductibility on student loans could be going away. And do you have a sense of other issues or concerns that we should be looking at as millennials going into the workforce again? Oh, well, if I were you, I wouldn't plan on the government providing any retirement for you. <laughs> I'm not planning on it for me. Um, Liz Cheney said we'd leave those alone. Um, you know, I, it is, you know, a little bit unfortunate. I think that there's some of the kind of education benefits in the tax system uh, look like they might be in jeopardy as a result of these reforms. Um, but, you know, that's, it's it's probably going to happen, and um, so you just plan accordingly. I don't think there's really much you can do about it. And the reality is, um, I think graduates uh, would be happy to have their earnings not deductible if their wages are higher or if it's easier to get a job. And the Republicans are hoping that their wages will be higher and it will be easier to get a job, and so the benefits will be greater than the sort of costs of not being able to deduct your, you know, student loan interest or something like that. But it's, you know, it's it's hard to know. And and I guess that's kind of the problem. Anytime you try to reform anything, there are winners and losers and has sort of been famously said, uh, not by me, but by others like Dan Shaviro, the, you know, the, the losers, uh, cry more loudly than the winners say thank you. And so as a result, it's really hard to do anything that's revenue neutral. So if we wrap this up, um, Scott, and thanks again for your time. Really appreciate you coming on. Do you want to venture in into an opinion as to are you pro or con this bill as, it, as we don't really know what it is, but what's been talked about so far? Oh yeah, it's it's really hard to have a strong opinion when you don't actually know what's what's in there. 
I mean, I could just say a few things. Uh, one is, from a corporate tax point of view, it's definitely the case that the American uh, corporate tax system was sort of uh, outdated relative to the rest of the industrialized world. And I do think it probably makes sense to help companies uh, be competitive from a tax point of view. Many people have argued that they were competitive. Their effective tax rates were already low. And I would say, well, if you're fine with them having low effective tax rates, why force them to jump through the complicated hoops that were necessary to get the low rate and instead maybe just give it to them to reduce kind of the deadweight costs that come along with tax avoidance and other issues? The tricky part about what I just said is that it's not entirely clear that this reduction in the corporate tax rates will eliminate the incentives to shift earnings abroad to avoid tax and so forth. Uh, so it's not, I, I think it's a step in the right direction from a corporate uh, tax point of view, but I think that it leaves a lot to be desired. And of course, if you want to keep it even close to revenue neutral and you want to lower the corporate tax rate, you're forced to do something uh, on the personal side to raise the revenue. And at some level, I don't completely disagree with the idea that we should tax uh, individuals instead of businesses. The tricky part is, you know, then if corporations or businesses have low rates, uh, individuals are exceptionally clever in developing mechanisms to reclassify their own personal income as corporate income or so on. So uh, I don't think I could really say if I love it or I hate it, but I do think it's time for reform and hopefully it will be better than what we've got. <laughs> but who knows? We'll Excellent. see when it's all revealed, I guess. Excellent. Well, Again, appreciate you coming on. That was Scott Dyering, Associate Professor of Accounting at Duke University in the Fuqua School. As we wrap up every episode, we're going to raise a glass to our men and women overseas who are fighting to preserve our right to discuss issues like this freely and protect our First Amendment. So appreciate you all overseas and fighting domestically. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.